John 11, 21 through 27. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Who is Jesus? This question is as important as it is timeless. How you answer it influences how you live and where you spend eternity. Amid much speculation, the Gospel of John gives us a clear picture. Jesus reveals his true identity. He tells us who he is in his own words. A few years ago, the satirical news website called The Onion ran a story with this headline, World Death Rate Remains Steady at 100%. The story went on to say that officials at the World Health Organization are disappointed that despite advances in technology and medicine and all that doctors and medical staff and first responders are doing, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. We know that to be true, don't we? The story goes on uh, to say that without trying to alarm anyone, birth could be one of the greatest safe, safety risks at all for, you know, for everyone involved. So don't be born, I guess, is what we're supposed to, to, to read into that. But it quotes a, a source. I don't think The Onion really has real sources. But it quotes a source and the source says this, we keep talking about death, everyone keeps talking about death, but no one seems to be doing anything about it. Well, this morning I'm here to tell you that someone has done something about it. You see, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. If you live and if you are born, which all of us qualify, and if Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime, you are going to die. That's just what you wanted to hear today, right? You came to be encouraged, to hear something, to feel good about yourself, and here the preacher is saying, you're going to die. <laughs> it's true, death is inevitable. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. You see, there can be more to the story. In fact, what Jesus will say in our story today, in our biblical text, he will say that. This story doesn't end in death. Yes, death is inevitable. But despair is not. And it's so important that we realize that. That we understand that we can live with joy. That we can face difficult times with peace. That we can grieve with hope. And that we can ultimately die someday with assurance. With assurance that that's not the end. With the assurance that Jesus has conquered death with the assurance that there is something after death. And that's good news. That should bring us encouragement. That should bring us joy. That should make us feel good, not about ourselves, but about who we are in Christ. You see, that is good news. And we need to hear good news, don't we? Because so many times life is difficult. So often as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that darkness... 
The darkness of that shadow overcomes us. And maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's thinking about and pondering our own death as it approaches. Or maybe it's just when life gets really tough. We need to know that death is not the end of the story. That there is, in fact, more to the story. As we wrap up our series we're calling I Am, looking at the identity of Jesus, one thing becomes very clear as we look at these statements Jesus makes about himself, and that is this. Whoever Jesus is, it means something for us. It's not just that we're learning about Jesus, we're learning about ourselves, those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And every time Jesus says, I am something, he gives us a direct invitation or offers a direct implication for us. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You see, it's not just this is who I am, but it means something for you. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's not just that Jesus is light, it's that he wants to give us light. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And he goes on to talk about how his sheep follow the good shepherd. In John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not just that Jesus is the way. It's not just that he is the truth or that he is the life. It means if we want the way to God, if we want the truth, if we want life, we go through Jesus. And in chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. When you remain in me and I in you, I produce fruit in you. You see, everything Jesus says about himself We learn something about him, but we also learn what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. That's the case in today's I am statement as well. Jesus says in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. That means something for us. And it doesn't just mean something for us when we die someday, whenever that might be. It means something for us right now. So in John chapter 11, if you have a Bible, you might turn there if you want to follow along. Sometimes it's helpful to have your own copy in front of you, either hard copy or on your device. John chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples are out by the Jordan River. They have left Jerusalem. More precisely, they have escaped Jerusalem because some people there were very unhappy with Jesus. In the temple courts, as Jesus was talking, they were gathering their attack, making their plans. In their minds, Jesus was blaspheming, claiming to be from God, and they were literally making plans to kill him by stoning him with large rocks. Jesus escapes, he and his disciples. So now he is away from Jerusalem, but he gets word from some of his friends who live near Jerusalem that his his dear friend Lazarus is sick. They lived in Bethany just right outside Jerusalem. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, send word to Jesus, the one you love is sick. Let's pick up the story in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. There's that phrase. You see what Jesus is saying there? 
Yeah, this sounds bad. Lazarus is sick, but his story will not end in death. There is more to the story. There is more to your story. It doesn't have to end with death. Jesus goes on and says, no, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus says, I will use Lazarus, his story, his life, his death as a platform for the glory of God and to show you that I am from God, that you would put your faith in me. Jesus was about to do something miraculous, remarkable, extraordinary. So when Jesus got the news about Lazarus, what did he do? Did he come running? Did he drop everything? No. If you know the story, you know he waited. He waited two days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back. Let's go back to Judea. And of course, his disciples, knowing what they escaped from, are thinking, this isn't a good idea. Jesus, do you remember? Do we need to remind you? Temple courts, angry mob, big rocks. Why would we go back? And Jesus says we would go back because our friend, the one we love, Lazarus, has fallen asleep. And we're going to wake him up. And they, the disciples, who are not exactly tracking with Jesus, say, well, think about this, Jesus. If he's sleeping, won't that be good for him? Let him rest. He needs his rest. He will feel better if he just sleeps. And of course, Jesus isn't talking about sleep, per se. Back in the text, verse 14. So then he told them plainly. Sometimes I love the way the English translation is translated. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> and for your sake, Jesus says, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. You see, if Lazarus got better on his own, or even if Jesus in that moment snapped his fingers and Lazarus got up and was fine, people probably wouldn't make the connection that this came from God, that this came from Jesus. So many times when we have something good in our life, when we overcome sickness, when we have something that happens that is good, we fail to see Jesus. We fail to see the hands of God, and we fail to thank him. We don't connect the dots. Jesus wanted them to connect the dots. He wants us to connect the dots. So he says, let's go back. He is about to do something that only God could do, showing that he is from God, so that they would put their faith in him, so that we would put our faith in him. So Jesus packs up with his disciples, and they go back. And of course, by the time they get there, Lazarus, who was terribly ill, is already dead. You might be thinking, well, now wait a second, Jesus said this would not end in death, and that's right, because there's more to the story. The story isn't over. Lazarus' body had already been in the grave for four days, and mourners from Jerusalem had joined Martha and Mary in their home for the Shiva, this Jewish custom that mourners would come and sit with people in their sorrow for seven days. That's what that word means. The mourners are there. Martha is sad. Mary is sad. But they get word that Jesus is on his way, that he's almost there, so Martha goes out to meet him. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
How many times have we thought, prayed, or spoken that little two-letter word, if? That word that is full of regret and remorse. If I had just done something different, if I had, if I had just said yes, if I had just said no, if I'd just gotten the job, if that treatment had just worked, if God had just answered my prayer, if things would have been different, if that relationship would have worked out, if I never would have met that person, if I would have met that person, how many times do we pray? How many times do we think? How many times do we say, if? If is loaded with regret and remorse. And that's where Martha is. Maybe you can relate. Martha approaches Jesus. Jesus, where have you been? If you had been here, things would be different. It's the same thing her sister Mary would say right after that. Jesus, if you've been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. They probably weren't expecting that, were they? Your brother will rise again. Martha, being a good first century Jew, she, she knew. She knew her Hebrew Bible. She knew Isaiah 55 and 56. God was preparing a new heaven and a new earth for his people. She knew that one day on the last judgment, on the day of the Lord, yes, our brother Lazarus, he will rise again. Martha is looking to the future. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. When Martha is looking forward, Jesus says, look right in front of you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection isn't just a future event. It is your current reality. The resurrection isn't just a doctrine. It's not just a principle. It is a person. It's not just something that's going to happen someday. It is happening now. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Of course, anyone can say that. Anyone can claim to be the resurrection and the life, and would-be messiahs had come before Jesus had made similar claims. How do you prove that you are the re resurrection and the life? Well, Jesus shows them, and he shows us. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. I always wondered, what did that look like? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? 
When Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, how did Lazarus walk out? Did he walk out like a mummy, you know? Did he strut out like, yeah, look at this? I, I don't know. But I know that this once stagnated body was now walking and talking. He was alive. No more speculation. No more wondering. Is Jesus really who he says he is? And for Mary and Martha, no more sorrow, no more sadness. Their brother was alive. You see, Jesus demonstrated power over death in that moment. And it changed everything. It changed everything for Martha and Mary. It obviously changed everything for Lazarus. It changed everything for everyone who was there. And it changed everything for you and me. Now we know Jesus is the Son of God. And we know that as the Son of God, he has the power over death. Remember, everything Jesus said about himself means something for us. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that means you will be raised if you're with Christ, and you will have life in his name. Your story, just like Lazarus' story, doesn't have to end in death. And when we understand that, when we embrace that truth, it changes everything for us, not just our anticipation of what will happen, it changes the here and the now. It changes how we live. You see, I believe that Jesus wants your future resurrection to invade your present reality. I think he wants the truth, the fact, the reality that in Christ you will be raised to live eternally someday to shape how you think and live and operate and function today. He wants that future reality to shape your current reality. It's not just that Jesus will give you victory. It's that Jesus does give you victory. 1 Corinthians 15. In this life, we don't have to live in fear of death. Isn't that good news? We don't have to live in despair. Things that happen to you in this life, they may be very difficult. No one's making light of those. But those things, those difficulties, those challenges, that suffering, they do not have the final say. There is more to your story. Even death is not final. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death as conquerors, as victors. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about some of the things that happen in life that we don't like. Trouble, hardship, famine, all the things that come our way. And this is what he says in verse 37. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Nothing, nothing can separate us. Why do we have victory in Christ? Because he has power over death. Why does he exert that power over death on your behalf? Because he loves you. And nothing can remove you from his love. Nothing can separate you from his love. 
So many times when we read this story in John 11, we don't really bring that part out. We see power. Jesus conquers the grave by bringing Lazarus out. We see testimony. We see all of these things. But don't miss the love. It was love that compelled Jesus to go back and risk his life. It was love that inspired him to empathize with these sisters. It was love that caused him to be moved to tears. Verse 33 of John 11. When Jesus saw her weeping, talking about Martha, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That phrase literally means he was angry inside. It's kind of an interesting way to say it, isn't it? He was angry inside. What was he angry about? I think he was angry about the injustice of suffering in this fallen world. I think he was angry that his dear sisters and friends had to go through this. I think he was angry at Satan who uses death and despair to draw us away from God. I think he was angry at evil. Verse 34, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we have that little verse, little two-word verse that was always my go-to memory verse when I was a kid. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. You see, love is an important part of this story. It's an important part of your story. Jesus may have waited two days to go back. Jesus may have used this opportunity to declare the glory of God and to get people to see that he was from God so they would put their faith in him and believe in him. This was, in fact, an incredibly important, teachable moment, but it was so much more. For Jesus, this was personal. It was about love, his love for his friends. This wasn't just a spiritual exercise. It wasn't just him making a theological point. It was personal. Why did Jesus weep? If that's me, and I know that I'm about to change everything, I'm about to bring Lazarus out of the grave, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm like, hey, everybody, stop crying. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Prepare yourselves. You're, you're going to be amazed. We're going to turn your frowns upside down. Just watch this. But that's not what Jesus does. I would have been so tempted to do that. Just step in and say, no, no, no. What does he do? He stops. And he mourns with those who mourn. He knows he's about to change the course of their lives, of history. And yet he takes the time to stop and to sit in the sorrow with those he loves. Nothing can separate you from that kind of love. Nothing can separate you from his love for you. It's that love that makes you more than a conqueror in this life, that makes you more than a conqueror over death. So what does that mean to you? How do you respond to that kind of love, to that kind of power? How does it change things for you? Do you think the life of Lazarus was changed after that day? Do you think his life was a little bit different? you think that that experience had any impact on him? I mean, think about it. At every dinner party, he had the story to top all stories. Right? Someone's sitting at the dinner table, you won't believe where I've been. You won't believe what I've seen. And what does what uh, Lazarus say? 
Yeah, well, there was one time when I was dead, and then I wasn't dead. <laughs> I mean, he had the story to top all stories. You wouldn't want to play two truths and a lie with this guy. Don't you know it changed everything about him? Don't you know he loved telling that story? And I can assure you, when he told that story, he wasn't the hero of the story. Who was? Jesus was. Because that's where the power was. And don't you know Lazarus lived with gratitude from that point on? He loved telling the story, and I bet he told it with gratitude. And I bet he often thanked God, and he thanked Jesus for what he had done, for giving him life. Don't you know he lived with a newfound sense of purpose and peace? Don't you know... He had joy, and his joy was contagious. Why, Lazarus, why are you so happy all the time? Well, let me tell you why. Because I was dead, and now I'm alive. Shouldn't our stories be the same? American playwright Eugene O'Neill has written a very creative play called Lazarus Laughed. And it is this fictional conjecture about Lazarus's life after that day. And one of the characters in the play talks about how Lazarus was different. He says, I, I didn't see any more sorrow in his eyes. It is like, the character says, sorrow was forgotten at the grave. And then another character, one that helped remove the stone from Lazarus's tomb, recalled and described how all of that went down. He said, I saw Lazarus. He knelt down and he kissed Jesus' feet. And then both of them smiled and Jesus blessed him. He put his hand on him. He said, my brother. And then Jesus went away. And Lazarus, watching Jesus walk away, began to laugh softly like someone who was in love with God. I love the way that he said that. Thus the name of the play, Lazarus Laughed. As he watched Jesus walk away, can you see him laughing as someone who is in love with God? You see, only a resurrected man can laugh in the face of death. That's the nature of the resurrected life. When you let your future resurrection invade your present reality, everything changes. You live with hope. You live with peace. You live with contentment. You live with purpose. You live with the assurance that death is not the end of the story. In a foreshadowing of his own resurrection, Jesus shows us that he has power over death. And that when we stick with him, death has no power over us. We will be raised to life. And so I think one of the lessons for us is live your life like you have life. Live your life like you have life. Death is inevitable, but despair is not. Shouldn't Christians be some of the most joy-filled people in the world? It's not that our lives are different, that circumstances are different necessarily. Bad things still happen to followers of Jesus. We all can bear witness to that. But we have something 
that those who are apart from Christ don't have. And that should give us great joy to know that these sufferings are temporary. We should be some of the most joy-filled people in the world. And when we live that way, it is contagious. It is infectious. People around us are drawn to that and drawn to the difference because it's so counterintuitive. It's so unusual. And as they're drawn to us, we point them to the one, the source, the reason that we have joy, that we can live with peace, that we are anchored in hope. We tell our story. We were once dead, but now we have life. So live like you have life. When we are grumpy and negative and anxious and angry, it damages our witness to the world. And it doesn't represent the kingdom of God, a kingdom marked by peace and joy. James chapter 1, verse 2. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I always, I'll, I'll admit, I always struggle with that verse. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. He goes on to say, because God is going to use that to do something special in your life. It is so counterintuitive, it's so unheard of. How can you consider joy the hard things that happen, the difficult things that happen in life. How can you find joy in that? I heard about one Christian, I suspect this is true, that he would actually throw considerate all joy parties. He would have people come over to talk about difficulties in his life and how God was going to use those to shape him. Doesn't that sound odd? What do, you, what do you bring to a considered all joy party talking about trials and tribulations? You bring deviled eggs, right? That's what you bring. That's such a weird thing to me. Hey, come on over. We're going to have a considered all joy party. I don't know about you, but when tough times come in my life, there's only one party I want to have. That's a pity party, right? I want to feel sorry for myself, and if you will feel sorry for me, that's even better. And James says, consider it all joy, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Well, that takes a different perspective, doesn't it? That takes a perspective that says death is not the end. And no matter how difficult life gets, there is something better. And even death itself does not have the final word. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That not only tells us something about him, it tells us something about us. Our death may be inevitable, but despair is not. We have hope, we have life, we have victory in Jesus. During the Middle Ages in Europe, there was a phrase that was often thrown around. It became very popular. The phrase was, memento mori. It means, remember to die. Remember death. The skull, sometimes bones, skull and crossbones, that was used visually to represent this expression. You see, during this time, the Black Death, the plague as they called it, had wiped out at least a third of Europe's population over a 150-year span. As bad as COVID was, can you imagine? Can you imagine the devastation? No remedy they could come up with would, would put it at bay. 
And so people, as you can imagine, started to live with this shadow of death hanging over them. They knew it was likely that they might not make it. It wiped out over a third of the population. And so the idea was, with this phrase, remember to die, remember death, have purpose and be intentional in your life. And I think there's some value in that. But that seems sort of fatalistic, doesn't it? Maybe a better phrase for followers of Jesus is memento vita. Remember life. Remember to live. Live like you have life. Yes, death is inevitable, but despair is not. The world death rate will continue to stay steady at 100% unless Jesus comes back. But death doesn't have to be the end of the story. Jesus asked Martha a very important question. It's the question I will finish with today, and that is, do you believe? Do you believe? Because when you believe, your life will follow that faith, and it'll change everything. If you're ready to claim your belief that Jesus is the Lord, if you're ready to reenact his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, if you're ready to have a new life because you were once dead because of your sins and now he has given you life, not just someday, but right now. Today's your day. If we can encourage you, we want to do that as well. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a little room right behind me. You can go there. They would encourage you and pray for you or you can come down to the front as we stand together and sing.